Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Paul Schrader. And um, I hate when people say someone needs no introduction. It's an honor to give him a proper introduction. Um, This is a man who wrote the movies uh, Taxi Driver, uh, American Gigolo, Hardcore, which is a huge movie in my life, Light of Day, Touch, another movie that I love, which he also directed. Uh, he directed the movie Autofocus, and which is another movie that I love, um, Affliction, which won a bunch of awards. And his newest film, First Reformed, just blew my fucking mind. He also wrote a little movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. But uh, his new movie is called uh, First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke, and has just come out. And I watched the film last night, and it destroyed me in the very best way that cinema can. Paul Schrader, thanks for being here. Thank you, Brian. So I just want to start by saying to you, all day I've been thinking of two quotes. Uh, I was thinking, I've been thinking of this thing Mailer said. Mailer famously said in this interview with his, one of his sons, I think one of his last interview maybe, that a, a, a novelist can get inside anybody's mind uh, except a better novelist. <laughs> and uh, that's, a, that's a nice quote. And I think it's true. And, um, and then there's this, which is how I feel right now. And then there's this, um, I've been thinking about Siddhartha a lot today, Hess's novel, because you know at the end of the novel, and it's not a spoiler, but at the end of the novel, because it's the Buddha story, but at the end of the novel, you know, Siddhartha says to Govinda, if you want to know, uh, kiss my forehead. And because words, it, words don't really do a very good job of translating that which is most important in that way. And if I could just kiss your forehead and then get this information to them, I would, sir. And um, people have been listening to this podcast for 200 episodes. They know I don't say this shit. So um, I'm going to do my best to get at some stuff with you. But um, I do feel in the presence of my better. So thanks for coming. Okay. um, I am at your mercy. Good. So I have a couple technical questions to start because I may forget later. One is tone. I was struck watching the movie. And, And whenever any of us speak in front of audiences, often we get a question about voice and tone. Your screenplays, which anyone can read, have a very clear sense of it. It's very clear, the mood. But how do you do the work, and I was thinking about it a lot watching this movie, how do you do the work of translating that tone to your crew, to the actors, to the editor, to the DP? What kind of thought goes into that? And then can you talk practically about how you actually do that? Yeah, I can. I mean, when you work on the quiet side, on the spiritual side, you get involved with, with holding devices because you can't hold somebody's hand and walk them into the mystery. You can't play music or make them identify into the mystery. So you have to get them to sort of come toward you. And so there are a whole series of withholding devices you know, that one uses. And different uh, directors who work in the durational, or a nice term, durational cinema, meaning time-consuming cinema, uh, use these devices in different uh, ratios. And uh, I have uh, a device that occurred to me when I did uh, a Taxi Driver, uh, and, and then I had an, a device that occurred to me when I wrote a book on transcendental style in cinema. And in in March of 1969, I was a critic at the LA Free Press. And I went to the Los Feliz Theater and saw Pickpocket 
to review it. The Brisson film. Yeah. Two things happened in that for 75 minutes. One is I saw this link of style that was a bridge between my theological background, my sacred background, and my profane present in UCLA Film School. And the other was I saw this man sitting in a room writing a journal and wandering around. And one of those uh, two seeds fell, you know, into a Petri dish. And one of those seeds created that book, which I've now redone. It comes out next week. And the other created Taxi Driver. Now, 50 years later, they have come together. So uh, I can talk about the trick of Taxi Driver. I can talk about the trick of Transcendental Style and how they align. Uh, you know, this is not that mysterious a business. You know, you, 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 you can actually explain these things. Even though the subject is mystery, the techniques are not. Well, this is what I'm asking about on this particular film. So I understand that in Taxi Driver, because I've read that script many times. So I, uh, and because and, that's available to people. But the thing I'm, I'm really trying to understand okay. he, is he, how you translate, in this movie you just made, okay. how did you translate the tone you wanted the ultimate film to have okay. to everyone who worked on it? Okay. Uh, well, it was a very young crew. I put them together and, and I just took them to school. That's all. Uh, but the trick of Taxi Driver, which is two elements. One is you have narration, a journal. Narration is like intravenous feeding. Your nourishment is going through a tube and it's going into your arm and you can't taste it and you can't recognize it, but you're filling up with this thing. And it's the thoughts of a man told quite blandly and they are often trivial but occasionally poignant. And that is just imbuing inside you. There's another tr trick that's going on which is a monocular view of the world where every single scene is from the main character's point of view. So after 45 minutes or an hour of wallowing in this man's thoughts and seeing his world, you have identified with him. There's no way you can't. And then he starts to veer. He starts to go off the rails, uh, little by little, until finally he's quite off the rails altogether. But you've already committed yourself to identifying with him. So uh, what happens when you are identifying with a character that you no longer think worthy of identification? Well, you, your skull cracks open. And you know that's, and then I've done my job. That's what I'm here for, to just open you up that way. So that's the, the knack behind Taxi Driver and these stories about these lonely men in these lonely rooms. And then you get involved in spiritual cinema and you get involved in all the withholding techniques where time starts to become a tool. You know, the scalpel of boredom. It's a very, very tricky scalpel. And, um, <laughs> and if you make a mistake, you're just boring. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, one of the things you withheld, and I have this down to ask you, written down to ask you, is you have the capacity to be hilarious on film. You've demonstrated it over and over again, even in films of serious subject matter. So even a film like Touch yeah. is really funny at the same time you're dealing with the spiritual, right? But here, you withheld all the laughs. Not all. I, I let a, a couple seep, seep through. Uh, 
but uh, I withheld a lot. You, you, I, I mean, I, um, I know what you're saying. There's, there's, uh, there's some warmth in the film, which it was a choice you made. There are some warm, a couple of warm moments in the film because this guy is in the end. Yeah, when there's that, that, that quote unquote dirty joke that I heard as a kid growing up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, um, so yes, there's an awkward moment, but actually the humor in that moment serves to <laughs> serves as a twin to the scene that happens at the evangelical place when the kids talking about <laughs> when they're talking about prosperity yeah. theology, right? So you're using that, but the decision to withhold the laughs that's hard. Isn't that hard for a filmmaker because the laughs give you such a um, well, a thrill I, in a way. To tell you the harder things is withholding uh, emotive acting. You know, I, the first met, the first time I met with Ethan, I said, this is a lean-back performance. If you can feel the audience member coming toward you, you have to lean away. Do not give them the gratification of acknowledging their interest. Just keep moving and moving away. Well, th that's pretty radical. Then you have uh, the frozen frame. Uh, no pan, no tilt, no camera movement. Then you have... Uh, the delayed cut, uh, which is uh, the thing I first saw in Brayson, and the delayed cut is a very fascinating technique because normally in films you cut on action. Somebody enters a room, exits a room, you cut on the door. So what happens when someone exits a room and you don't cut, you hold one, two, three seconds. Now you're just watching the door. That is not something you ever do in real life. You never sit there and watch a door after someone exits. But now you're in a movie and the guy, the director is just holding down the door. So what's happening right now? It's not nothing. Something is happening. And it's not about that door. It's about those three seconds just watching the door and how he's manipulating your sense of time and throwing you off your own time rhythms into his. And that's, you know, one of the secrets of durational cinema. What happens when things take too long? But here, even more directly, you're also dealing with a withholding God. And so, <laughs> I mean, and so you're, without ever speaking to that directly, that's what's happening in those moments is, you know, is God going to fill in that space? Is yeah, God and certainly, help? well, music isn't going to. There's no music. You know, music is the easiest, most superficial, uh, manipulative tool we have in movies. And, you know, movies are, by nature very desperate and hungry for your love. This is what I was asking with the, with the laughs, right? Because I, um, I have fallen prey to it to create, you know, I uh, fallen prey to the, the, the sort of this temptation, and you write about temptation all the time, the ways in which we're weak. The ways in which we're weak as filmmakers often is that when we know how to use the tool of getting provoking laughter, we do it. Yeah, well, I mean, the hunger of a filmmaker for approval. Yes. You know, he, he grabs the viewer by the lapels and he shows them pretty girls and, and fast action and explosions. And he plays music so the viewer knows how to feel every single second of the time. That's how desperate he wants your attention. But there's nothing for you to do then. You just sit there, you're passive, and, and you're told how to feel. But what happens when he's, a filmmaker stops doing that? What happens when there's no music? What happens when there's no edits to tell you which character is more important at this moment? Well, then you have to start deciding for yourself. And like in this film, a man comes across 
a body and the head is blown to pieces. And there's, no, there's no music. You know, what is he feeling? Well, we're not going to tell you. you. You figure it out. Well, the, in a way, in more than in almost any movie I've seen in a long time, the character is synecdoche for the whole thing, right? Be, because he's, I mean, um, even the, in, a, in a world where people are connected in the ways they are, this is a character who's resisting a, that kind of connection. He has a flip phone and checks his flip phone, right? <laughs> and he only eats really once in the film. <laughs> No, so you're, he's um, a character who's also, God's withholding, he's withholding his love from people who want to love him. Uh, you very briefly speak to it, why the event, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to spoil um, sort of his, his reason. But as, as an artist, it's so hard not to fall prey. How did you discipline yourself? Well, I, I wrote the book on it. I mean, um, you know, 45 years ago, I studied these techniques and wrote a book on transcendental style and cinema and how you use withholding yeah. devices to pull the viewer into the screen. I never thought I would make one of those films. I thought that was other people's interest. Um, I thought I was too interested in sex violence, action, and empathy. But finally, uh, you know, almost 50 years later, I decided it was time for me to make one of them. And when you withhold from a viewer, and you withhold knowingly and with calculation, you put the viewer in a position where he can, he or she can do one of two things. They can either get up and leave, or they can start moving into the empty space you've created by not giving them what they want. And... Uh, and that's the delicate dance of durational cinema, which is how do you, as I said a moment ago, how do you use boredom as an aesthetic tool and not be boring? So um, I understand you're very clear about the intellectual underpinnings. But then also you're one of those artists, as we all are, who wants the approval. Because we all do, like... um. We do this to share this stuff, right? Um, on whatever level we can. How do you not allow the insecurity to win ever? Are you ever scared? Or are you past fear? I, I think I'm past fear. Uh, I had an event that happened to me about five, six years ago. And I had a film that was taken away from me. And I thought that was it. I fell into depression and alcoholism. I thought my career was going to end in a fiasco and uh, I would spend my remaining days in regret and remorse. I was able to bounce back from that film, do another film with Nick Cage where I had Final Cut, and all of a sudden I had freedom. And I made a kind of outrageous film called Doggy Dog, Dog yes. which is kind of a Tarantino-esque uh, uh, salute to the profane and, and the vulgar. And, uh, and then... So now I said, I, I finally, I got that freedom. What can I do with this freedom next? I said, I can do nothing. You know, one of, the, one of the things you can do with freedom is nothing. I cannot move the camera. I cannot uh, cater to the audience's visceral desires. I'm going to try to see what happens when I use freedom to do nothing. How did you, ha how did you get that freedom? 
And what what happened was is that the film that was taken away from me with Nick Cage. Yes. And I spoke with Nick and I said, you know, we got to work together again. We have to get this stain off our clothes. Now, basically, I was talking about my clothes because he'll never get the stains off his. And <laughs> <laughs> and he said yes, and I had a project. Then I went to the financiers, and I said I can get the case for this, but I cannot call him unless I get final cut because we were just we lived this yes. And so they said, okay, okay, if you get Nick, you can have final cut. So then I got it, and then came to do the next one, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to get it again. By getting Ethan, you were able to get final. No, no, by getting Nick. Right, but I'm saying on this one, how did you how did you arrange? It was the so same you could company. make exactly the movie you wanted to make. It was the same company. I had established uh, uh, a relationship based on Final Cut with this company, and you know they asked me what do I want to do next. And I said I'm, I want to do something that you want no part of, uh, that is antithetical to everything you that interests you about movies. And they said, of course, can we read it? <laughs> yeah. And you'd written it already. Yeah, yeah. I can, had Ethan already. I want to just revisit for a second. Many of the people who listen to this podcast are people trying to get past those moments. It's um, I was a blocked writer until I was 30 and then figured it out. So like those, the, an obsession of mine is how people in these inflection point moments when like it goes to shit what the actual brick by brick thing is to turn it around. Cause you have to write the next script, right? So can you just talk about, I'm not asking you to talk about the alcoholism that doesn't, uh, but, but what, what did you do? What practice did you put in for yourself or what, what was your, the way you talk to yourself to be like, first of all, it's hard for me to imagine you having accomplished everything you did actually f feeling that sense of hopelessness. But, but then how did you actually dig out of it? Like what was the shovel? Um, it took a while. It took a while. Um, like, you know, almost eight months. Wow. Uh, you know, I was just stuck. And then, uh, then I started storing again. But I didn't read Dog. I didn't write Dog. Right. You, you found the script. Yeah. And, and I saw there a way to remake the film that I had done with Nick in a way that would validate that collaboration. Can I see, were, did, did you have, um, did you at any point in that lose the belief that you were a great writer? Or did you know, like, did it, did it uh, stop you from, because you said you hadn't felt it stirring? Well, you're not always a great writer. For sure. Yes. You know, and you write bad things and you, or mediocre things and you make mediocre and failed movies. Um, you know, and there is a, a bit of luck and a bit of providence involved when it works. You can't say, oh, I'm going to write a script that hits the bullseye of the zeitgeist. No, that, that sort of happens. <laughs> you know, Taxi Driver is not calculated. It just happens to hit the zeitgeist. Yes, it's not. of course it's not calculated. <laughs> yeah. You're experiencing and living, and it's everything that happened to you up until that moment. Yeah. And then you write the thing, and you partner with this director and this actor and this woman and yeah and then all of a sudden uh you know 50 years later people are you know still watching it but but with this movie starting to write again after a period of not writing is hard 
and also dispiriting sometimes that period. What happened? Did did you journal? Like what? How did this idea surface for you in that time? Well, I, I'm not. I don't consider myself a, a writer. Writer. I consider myself a binge writer. Uh, uh. And so that I, at any given time, and now is one of those times, I'm working on two or three ideas, and I process them and I outline them and I tell them. And I wait for them to come to some kind of fruition. Uh, first, orally, you know, if, if you can tell a story for 45 minutes, you have a script. Oh. And then through outlining. And finally, in this process, one of two things will happen. This idea will, will start to die. And that's actually a very good thing because you've been spared all the work of writing a script that wouldn't have succeeded. Or it will start to say to you, enough with this talking. It's time to write now. We want to go to work. And then huh. it usually happens quite quickly because you've told it so many times and outlined it so many times. And then, then it takes off. So and then that's Then are you writing all day when you're then writing? Yeah, is it, then you're binge writing. You're binge writing all day long. Yeah. Blow, it's coffee or whatever it is and just blowing through. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, you know, I'm thinking of that Hemingway thing, which I've always taken as gospel in a way not to talk it out. But actually, you think talking it out can be a victory. Losing it through talking it out is a win, maybe, for you. That's because I think screenwriting is part of the oral tradition, not part of the literary tradition. Why is that? Uh, screenwriting is about me telling you a story about your uncle coming back and saying, uh, from a hunting trip and saying the dog got sick and the bird got away. And, and he could tell that story for 15 minutes and has nothing more to it than the dog got sick and the bird got <laughs> yeah, away. Right. But he's a good storyteller. And uh, and that's what screenwriting is, part of that oral tradition. And uh, because it's not really about literary finesse. It's about, um, you know, uh, fireside storytelling. Or, of course, you know, visual, visual storytelling, which is the other half of, your job, which you do after you write a script. Yeah, that's a separate, that's sort of, um, you've done a bunch of the work to re-stoke the fire once you've written it, right? So it's not as an, um, for, I'm wondering, I mean, um, I imagine the, the insecurity or whatever the thing is, once you've written the piece that you know is the thing, it's easy, it's um, mentally easier to psych yourself up to shoot it, or is it not? No, no, it's a different thing because you write it out and now you've written something based on the oral tradition. And now you say, okay, now let's move this whole thing into the visual tradition. And, um, you know, I'm holding here in my hand a plastic glass of water. Now, this object I'm holding is not a plastic glass of water. That, those are four words. That's not what this is. This is something else. This is an image. And when it moves across the screen, it's another image. And when it turns upside down, it's another image. So what does it mean when you say he drinks from a plastic glass of water? What is that image? So you now you're trying to retranslate literary words into visual language. And at some point, you have to say to yourself who is this asshole who wrote this script how can i save this script from you know its mundaneness how can i lift it to a visual concept and, and so then the other side of the brain kicks in 
Is that part of why you started directing other people's material because you wanted uh, to train yourself in a way to have that sort of distance from the material or did you always have that distance from the material? Yeah, well the first three scripts I wrote, uh, first three films I had written and then somebody offered me a chance to do Cat People. Yes. And it was just, uh, I thought, gee, it would be fun to do something that wasn't personal. But then of course I made it and it ended up being just as personal as the other ones. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine someone making a film as personal as Hardcore <laughs> ever again, though you've done it a number of times. I mean, I was, I've been, was sort of struck by how First Reform, Taxi Driver, and Hardcore are sort of a trinity of movies that are incredibly personal, or it feels that way. And I wonder how true that is. Well, the, the three that are really almost alike is Taxi Driver, Life Sleeper, and uh, First Reform. Uh, and they're all about a man who writes a journal, and when he's young, he's lonely. When he's older, he's anxious, and when he's even older, he's de he is in despair, and uh, that is a kind of arc of a character. And in between those three points, I have iterations of him in a superficial fashion: one as a gigolo, and one as a society walker. Uh, so that that is a kind of arc, which is why First Reformed feels. Um, so gratifying because you see this huge art come to completion. Yes, you really do. And, in an, and as people have written about already in a nod to the film that mattered <laughs> the most to you. But um, I went back today and looked at uh, the Brisson film and, wow. and um, the, right from the beginning, you know, looking at the, <laughs> the journal, awesome, and the voiceover <laughs> and all that stuff. But, well, I can make the argument about hardcore, though, because the other piece of this movie and Taxi Driver is about uh, a, a man who has some certainty about and the hypocrisy surrounding him. Now, hypocrisy has been a theme in many of your <laughs> hypocrisy, a version of con men, you know, uh, high level institutional yeah. cons is something you've thought about a lot on the page, I think. Um, do you see it the same way now? You know, you present the hypocrisy in a much gentler way in this film than you ever have before. And I wonder about how you made that choice. Uh, you know, I, I'm a product of the uh, Christian Reformed Church, Western Michigan, Northside Christian, Grand Rapids Christian High, Calvin College. And, you know, the, the program, the computer got programmed. And um, you don't reprogram your computer. You can spend years trying, but eventually the programming will out. And uh, so I um, decided to swing around and find what was positive about that programming rather than what I had been fighting against. Yeah, the scene in the film when Hawk's character, you know, is called to meet with the head of the big church. In lesser hands, and in fact, in earlier films, I think, uh, the, you know, this incredible staging moment when Cedric turns his back <laughs> on him. But it's, and it's, you know, uh, I don't want to interpret that <laughs> moment for people, but it's, you know, man of God turning his back on another man of God. and. Um, yet still listening. It's amazing because yet still listening. Yeah, but just saying, oh, please, stop with this. 
<laughs> you know, you're, you're, let me explain the way the world really works. But but I but I, I do want to talk about. I understand about the computer programming stuff, and I've heard you say that before. I get it. And by the way, this season of Billions, I, I know you don't watch our show. You should. I'll give you some DVDs. Okay, but I, thank you. but but um, we we uh, have two homages to you in the season. Wow. Uh, one, a character uh, tells another character he's just realized that the guy's a Calvinist. And um, that the guy considers that he's all, you know, he's already damned. And the guy says, well, it's not exactly ecumenically right. But <laughs> yes, it sort of is. Uh, but but I do think that um, institutional hypocrisy has been a big deal to, to your, in your work. And I am interested in why toward the end of the movie, our character turns it on himself more than he turns it on. He makes a decision uh, to consider not only the culpability of the larger thing, but his own, in a, in a way that makes him, I don't want to say healthier than some of your other characters, but more complete. And I'm wondering about that. Well, you know, it's a little tricky, and I'm, I'm not as concerned about spoilers as you are. Um, Good. Great. The, um, you know, this is a man who's sick. He has what Kierkegaard called the sickness unto death, despair. He's trying to handle this through a journal, a form of prayer, because he can't really pray, through the liturgy, through alcohol. And then he meets this kid who's an eco-radical. And then the boy dies. He counsels him and the boy dies. And he picks up that kid's virus. Now, what is that all about? Was he actually an, a radical environmentalist all along? Or was he a sick man looking for a mantle to wrap his sickness in. Because Christianity, St. Augustine, tells us that suicide is a sin. However, Samson is redeemed because his suicide is uh, permissible because he's a martyr. In God's name. In God's name. So if he can wrap this whole thing around him, God's creation, it can justify his selfish pathology of suicide and his wacky notion of suicidal glory that I can earn my own salvation. And so did he really become uh, a radical environmentalist or did he just catch a virus that was waiting for him? And if it ha hadn't been that one, it would have been a different one. And did you start thematically or do you start with a character, a world, an idea? A character. Oh, it's always a metaphor. Uh, you start with a metaphor. Well, the metaphor is the first thing. And so what would it have been in this case? Okay, no, it, when you start with a problem, then you jump to a metaphor. So if the problem is loneliness, the metaphor is the taxi cab. Perfect metaphor, great metaphor, white co uh, yellow coffin floating through the sewers of the city with a young man trapped inside. And so here it's an old dying church. Yeah, well, here it's a... Uh, a Minister, uh, yeah, a minister who can't pray. In uh, Light Sleeper, it's a drug dealer. What's well, a middle-aged drug dealer whose boss is going to quit and start a cosmetics company, and he has no skills. That's a great middle-aged metaphor. Um, so, you know, you have a problem, you have a metaphor. And then you start looking at the plot permutations of what happens when that problem starts running through that metaphor. So let's go all the way back to Taxi Driver. You have loneliness, Taxi Driver. He can't get the girl 
he desires. He can't desire the girl he can get. He tries to kill the father figure of one, he fails. He kills the father figure of the other and ironically succeeds. Entire story. That's it. Um, it's that simple. And this time you also, this time the same thing. Metaphor, character, what are the problems that this character faces? As you're writing, can you tell? I think this is helpful for people. Um, can you tell when it's going to be major work or minor work? Do you have any sense of it? Does it feel different? You start to get a vibe. Um, you start to get a vibe. I uh, I, I thought I, I was writing something quite recently, and I had to stop in order to do press. And I had the vibe, and then it went away. And now uh, I'm about halfway into it. And I'm not going to go back to it. I'm going to go back to outlining it. I'm going to go right back to the start and start re-outlining it because something happened around page 36 that started to die. And, and now that you stepped away from it, you can recognize it. Well, I don't know what it is yet. I will do it. Because, see, when I outline something, I list every single scene. And I have a, a projected page count for every scene. So I can tell you, before I write word one, what more or less is going to happen on page 56? On page 56 and a half, in fact. And so as I'm writing, I'm calculating my outline. Now, if I start losing time or gaining time, I have to decide, is my outline wrong or is the writing wrong? Uh, if the outline is right, then I, I should scale back a bit or expand. If, if the right, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, you take a script and usually, you know, if you project it at 111, it'll come in 109, you know, pretty close. Right from the outline, you know how many pages each scene is. Yeah. Yeah. And you learn That's that amazing. from oral tradition. Because you're telling the story. You're telling it. So you, you know how many seconds, you know, how many minutes a certain scene has in it. Who did you tell First Reform to before you wrote it? Oh, a lot of people. How? Like over dinner? How does that work? Well, you just say, um, you know, can I get you a cup of coffee? Can I buy you a drink? I want to tell you a story. And you just start telling them a story. It doesn't really matter what they say. You don't care what they say. What you're doing is you're just watching them. You're watching their body language. You're watching uh, if they get antsy. You know, and you're, you're playing the room the way... A comic would play the rope. You know, am I losing him? Am I losing her? How do I keep her? You know, oh, oh boy, I'm in trouble now. I've got to do something. So all of a sudden, you know, uh, Chandler once said, you get in trouble, I have a guy walk in the room with a gun. The audience will be so happy he's there, they won't ask where he came from. So all of a sudden, boom, I'm losing you. And then, and then all of a sudden, this girl pulls her wig off and she has a red head. Well, now you got him back. Right. And so you're doing that, but in a movie like this one, which, as you say, is about withholding, yeah. is about not having um, and traditionally entertaining moments. But I want to stress, the movie is riveting. So, and it's riveting without jump scares, without any of that stuff. Well, this is what's interesting, Brian, is I set out to work on the slow side. Um, when I first screened this 
movie. I said to my friends, I got to warn you, this is a slow movie. And after it was over, somebody said, this is not a slow movie. So I, I, in some ways, perhaps I miscalculated because I thought it was going to be slower than it was. But somehow, and I know what it was, it was that... It, it was that internal engine of Taxi Driver. Just started ramping up and creating a, that sort of throbbing beat. And so, you know, I had the, uh, the character from Diary of a Country Priest. I had the premise from Winter Light. I had the ending from Mordant. I had the levitation from Tarkovsky's Mirror. I had the credits from Voyage in Italy. I was stealing all over the place, but the glue that held it all together... I mean, you said, now I went into this not having seen the trailer. So for me, that moment you just referenced, the levitation moment, which, <laughs> you know, I started, jump, I jumped up and down like I was watching, and it, I was watching last night at home, you know, and when that happened, uh, that you gave us, I was reminded of, um, did you happen to see Cromer's production of Our Town? Uh, yes, down to, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when suddenly, you've seen Our Town yeah. a thousand times, yeah. and suddenly there was uh, the bacon cooking, yeah. and there was color. And this very deliberate, slow piece that was all about leaching out the color and all that stuff <laughs> suddenly allowed you this moment of, ro of a kind of um, romance that couldn't be, you know, a, a lost romance. And when, when this moment happened, I know you're referencing Tarkovsky, but for me, I was reminded of, the, uh, you know, in Tree of Life does something similar too in a different way. But it was a beautiful moment man did you have that from the beginning did that come into your head early no no what happened how did the, you how did that moment occur but i knew at the end of the movie i had to jump into the other plane of reality the one that runs right alongside us and that is so close to us but we can't see it okay so i'm gonna jump mm. you know i'm gonna jump over there and i i should i thought i should foreshadow this somehow so that the viewer knows that right under this world is another world. Uh, and we could go there. We could end up there. We just want to tell you that it's there. And so then I started thinking, how can I do that? How can I pull that off? And quite literally, I was sitting at my desk and I said to myself, well, what would Tarkovsky do? I love it. I said, well, he would have them levitate. That was his go-to position. You know, you get two people horizontal and they start to levitate. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. That's like the mammoth, mammoth line in, uh, in Thief when he says, um, or in Heist, the mammoth line when he says, I think of what a smarter guy would do and I do that. <laughs> you know? So, right, you went to the master. You went to one of the masters. And so your knowledge of, of the entirety of cinema history helps you and you're not afraid to pull from it. Yeah, well, you know... You make, I mean, it's your own moment. Well, the, the, the secret of uh, stealing is that you have to steal around. Um, you have to say that one more time? You have to steal around. You can't go back to the same 7-Eleven every time. Mm. They catch you. So, ah, you know, you go to the floral shop. Then you go to the gas station. Then you go to that hot dog stand that nobody goes to. And you keep grabbing this stuff, and eventually somebody will think that you made it up. That's one of the best. That is really great. I don't know if you've written that before or said it before. I meant you might have, but I haven't heard it before, and that's fantastic. Do you find writing now energizing or enervating? Um, well, it's, it's, it's fun when it is happening. Uh, when, 
when it turns to sludge, it's oh. it's very hard to just stand up and walk away because you think you're going to burst through. Now you have obligations as a show. You have to create. And so if you run into sludge, you have no choice but to put on, you know, larger boots and muck your way through. Whereas I, if I run into sludge, I have to decide, is it time to, to walk away, rethink it, uh, perhaps discard it. And that is the scariest part. You know, having made movies for 20 years, that which is what my partner and I did before this, the scariest part of this was that going into it was what you know the ability to that you have to to stop to take more time and film you genuinely you don't have but if you're I will say you know if you were willing to be rigorous the whole time you, you don't have to stop just because of the deadline you can keep it going well I, I think the reason episodic TV works the way it does with with writing gangs is because I don't think one person can keep that momentum up week after week. You have to have a room of writers. And that when one person is vectoring down, another person may be vectoring up. Yes, it's a very, the fact that there are other people who can throw even an idea at you that you can then take off and yeah. go right is helpful, but I'm not talking about me. Um, This is one of the only episodes of this I don't want to talk about myself at all, because <laughs> I have you here. Um, I want to revisit uh, sort of this this idea that's in some of your movies, which is, the 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 and you do it in this film too, uh, and I know you may not. I I I'm feeling like you don't see that much of a connection between hardcore and this film, but I think eventually you will because the George C. Scott's mission in that movie, in a way, his determination to um, right the world the way that he sees that he's on this mission that he's taken on about this girl is to me quite similar because he feels she's lost in the same way that the boys, the two boys are lost in this one. And, and so the question I'm asking is about when we make ourselves the hero in our own story, that, which is in all of, almost all of your, or many, many of your movies, do you, is it avoidable? Can we avoid it at all as people? Well, I mean, one of my problems with hardcore is I think it's a little too close to the bone. Sure. Uh, it's not metaphorical enough. It is about my father, and the fact that I had to change the ending, of course, still weighs heavily on me, and it makes it impossible for me to see that film in an objective fashion. I get that. Uh, but, you know... But this idea of us making ourselves the hero in the world, to the ex and then, you know, setting off on this thing, and then we don't even fucking see the consequences... Or that, that, in fact, we've become not the hero. So this recurs in your work, and I'm wondering where that's from. Good question. Um, you know, they just had a series of films over at the Quad, uh, what they call origin stories, which are films that have influenced you. And, you know, my origin stories are quite predictable with the exception of one film, uh, by Bud Bedecker called The Tall T with Randolph Scott. And somebody asked me, you know, why do you put that in there? I said, you know, I've always liked this concept that Bedecker had with Randolph Scott, this idea that the protagonist is a symbol. 
you know, and this character, Randolph Scott, talks of, talks of himself in the third person. So <laughs> if somebody says to him, I heard, you know, uh, a couple fellows got shot up, shot up down Sonora Way, he would say, a man could do that. Meaning he shot them up, <laughs> and uh, and th that kind of uh, distance, uh, psychological realism and uh, and personal realism, uh, I think is very interesting. And, and I, you know, I I understand you like hardcore. I, I made one film about my father. I made one film about my mother, and they are the. Two films I'm most unsatisfied. I understand with. that. I completely understand that. But the deeper question is like, um, even this character in First Reformed, as Travis Bickle, make have told themselves something about the world being disordered, and have decided they're the person to order it. And uh, I look at the world now, and I see that as something that ails our society, our. Uh, us, many of us making decisions, leaders, about the disorder and deciding to order it and then fucking everything up. And I'm wondering if it's inescapable, in your opinion. Well, it's the lure of fascism. That's you what know. I'm asking about. You know, um, and the worse things get, the more tempted we get by fascism. Uh, and in the case of First Reformed, you're talking about something quite uh, dedicated to Christianity. Now, uh, blood is in the DNA of Christianity. Um, the streets of old Jerusalem ran red with sacrifices. Jesus came, symbolic sacrifice, but we have to participate in his blood. Have to eat his body, drink his blood, uh, be washed in his blood. There's a font that flows from Emmanuel's veins. So it's, it is still a kind of a blood cult, even though it doesn't profess to be. So when Christians go off the rails, this is often how they go, because they get confused between Jesus' sacrifice and their own. And they start thinking that if they sacrifice, if they participate, through their own uh, suicidal pathology, they can uh, earn their own redemption. And in this film, the minister says, uh, uh, Cedric, Cedric says to Ethan, God doesn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. But Ethan can't see that because his suffering is so satisfying to his need and his pathology. Yes, and can we escape? Do you think as humans? So that's the, the way it manifests in, in the, your version of Christianity. And then you use the suicide vest because you're also trying, you're trying to connect Christianity to fundamental Muslim behavior, to the behavior in Israel. You're trying to, and succeeding, at making us understand this impulse in all religions, and in fact in all of humans, to... Uh, see our own demise as the demise of the world and want to take the whole fucking thing down with us. And, and um, you know, the, um, uh, you come away, but then, I, um, I don't want to say you pull the punch because uh, I'm not meaning it in a pejorative way. I love the end of the movie. But I find as a mature, uh, that, that you made a different decision at the end of this movie than I think you would have 40 years ago. And I'm interested in 
whether that tells me that you have slightly more hope even in what you're depicting as desperate times or if, if you just love this character too much. You know, well, so uh, much. You know, it is... It's an ending that's open to interpretation. Yes. Do you feel he is alive or not? Right. Either she came in or she didn't. I understand yeah. that. Now, um, so on one hand, it may be a miracle, and he is saved. Um, but, but I do think he, he did this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah but he, I'm not, saying he didn't go into the... He, no, he, no, he didn't complete his original mission. No, no. He, she came in. She interrupted. Uh, he's about to drink the Drano. And she interrupted, and, and he, he he's rescued by her. Another version is he's on all fours. He's drunk the Drano. He is puking out his stomach. And God comes over to him and says, I, you want to see what heaven is like? I'll show you right now. Here it is. And he opens the doors. And he said, this is exactly what heaven looks like. It looks like one long kiss. Yes. But this is not a decision, and it's gorgeous. This is... I, two questions. One, did you have the Drano image right from the beginning? Uh, that image of that visual? Because yeah. when you talk about manif making something visual. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, you know, There are three possible endings. One was the Peck and Paul's the Brisky Point ending, where you just have an endless slow motion of explosive parts and body parts and eyeballs, you know, flying. So you considered that? Oh, yeah. Flying across the screen at 120 frames a second. Um, and actually, I think that's a weakness in, in Zabriskie Point. Um, and then the next ending was the Country Priest ending, where the character falls out of frame and you're left looking at the crucifix. And uh, I was working on that, and I, I gave that draft to Kent Jones of a New York Film Festival. And Kent said to me, um, oh, you went for the country priest ending. Uh, I, I thought you were going for the Ordette ending. And Ordette is a 1955 film by Carl Dreyer where a miracle occurs, and a man's wife is resurrected from her coffin, and his response is not to fall on his knees and say, I've seen a miracle, or thank you, God. His response is entirely carnal. Oh, my God, I have my wife back. I just want to hug her, and I want to kiss her. And uh, so that was where I went. Yeah, and it's, it is uh, the perfect, and, I mean, you chose the, that relentless sort of uh, willingness to share. I can't believe yeah. you shared your work, and then <laughs> that enabled you to find th this incredibly, I'm sure you see audiences react in such a positive way. Um, to the setting, I want to believe he didn't die at the end, just for whatever that's worth. That's my what I want to believe. I want to just switch gears for a second in our remaining moments. Um, one of my favorite films of yours, you didn't write the first, you're not a credited writer, though. I know, obviously, you did a bunch of writing on it, is Autofocus, which for me yeah. is a perfectly executed film. Uh, does that film look different to you now in the way the world is, uh, the way we talk about men? I mean, that's a very, if people haven't seen that film, I want to demand that you go see it. Be, because... Um, it's a study of many different things. One of the things is this study of a certain kind of empty charm and its ability to um, get whatever it wants in the world. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm just wondering how that movie hits. I it's also hilarious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, these two goofballs. Um, but it's a group grope, Bob. Is one of, I'll say, <laughs> we say it's a group grope, Bob, basically every day in the billions. <laughs> so uh, Sony Classics released that. And uh, they thought it was going to do much better than it did. And Michael Barker 
Earth said we didn't realize the problem until it opened. The problem was, he said, that men and women didn't want to see the movie together. Ah, yeah, right. And that you would see people going to the multiplex, and the man would go to autofocus, and the woman would go to a different movie. And and I recognized that when I went to the multiplex because I came out behind a couple, and the woman turned to her husband and said, "Are men really like that?" And he said, "Well, I knew this guy once." <laughs> Meaning, it's not me, and I don't know him anymore. <laughs> and you knew, you knew if it wasn't a movie people could talk honestly about. Yeah. So I don't know what it says about me. I watched that movie with my wife, so that's a, a whole different thing, and we both liked it. Um, just a couple more questions. Does, does critical success, does it matter to you? How do you define success now? Because obviously getting to make your own work the way you want it, but how else do you define it for yourself? Do you know uh, Ride the High Country? I, a little bit. Yeah, it's a film by uh, Sam Peckinpah. I mean, I've seen all Peckinpah's movies, but I don't really, I can't recall that okay, movie. Okay, this is with Randolph Scott and Joel McRae, two old cowboys. And uh, at one point, Randy Scott says to McRae, what do you really want, Steve? His name is Steve Judd. And Steve Judd gives the answer that Sam had heard from his father, who was a preacher. And he says, all I want to do is enter my house justified. And I guess that's sort of how I feel. You know, I, if I can enter my house justified, I don't care whether the critics know about it or not. I can't think of a better way to end than that. <laughs> um, it's a worthy goal. I think I might put that up in the writer's room, actually, and make everyone watch that film. Um, Paul Schrader, I can't thank you enough. Are you on any social media? Can people send you notes anywhere? Or find I'm on Facebook. So Paul Schrader's on Facebook. You can find him there. I'm at, uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. I will not pass your notes on to Paul Schrader, so don't do that. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I, I want to just say it again. First Reformed is the best movie I've seen this year. It should win the Academy Award. Mr. Schrader should uh, win Academy Awards for screenplay and direction. And, um, I, you know, you've been listening for a long time. I don't say this shit. So uh, it's true. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Brad. <laughs>